Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Hello, welcome to the Forest Educator Spotlight on ethical dilemmas in forest education. These topics that I cover in these spotlights really range from very general things like talking about tracking or birds or trees or skill-related or craft-related topics. And then at other times, we get into more philosophical situations that forest educators might find themselves in. And the reason I like to talk about this stuff is because I find that these are things that I think about a lot, especially over the last 15 years, to really try to figure out how do I find my way through this maze or this experience where I have like my own personal beliefs and then I also have what we end up having to do to do an after-school program or run a summer camp or run a, a semester program for training forest educators. Like all of these things really add up in my mind to things that we have to deal with as educators, as teachers. I don't usually find that there are people blogging about these issues or talking about them. So that's why I feel like this is important for us to get it out there and then have conversations and see where it goes. One thing that I'm hoping to be able to provide uh, later on in this fall in 2024 here is to actually do a monthly webinar or Zoom call where we invite anybody that wants to jump on to basically have a an actual live discussion about these topics for those of you that are interested in getting in there and sharing your opinion, which is very valid. So that's something I'd like to do. I, I don't have the bandwidth to be able to add one more thing onto my plate right now, but I'm hoping that my Patreon account will start to take the pressure off if I can see if people will support what we're doing here. But this is really a critical aspect for us to talk about these issues if we want to see this field grow. We, you know, many of these questions and or topics really need to be discussed so that we can get a lot of different opinions and perspectives and ideas out there and then see what we might do to navigate through them. So I thought we'd just talk about ethical dilemmas. Now, ethical dilemmas are defined as a paradox or a a problem that arises when there are two or more options, you know, for you to go forward with, but neither of those are in like a full alignment with your own morals or philosophy or beliefs. So it puts us in a tricky situation, right? So you're like, okay, if I go this way, there are problems, there are things that don't quite jive. And if I go the other way, things don't jive. So how do we resolve those? So an example of that right now I can think of, that's probably a a very safe way to, to dive into this right off the bat is I had this ethical dilemma when I was filling out all the information for my summer camp back in like 19... 89. And there was a 
it was run through the county back then, like the county health department had a representative or a director and he came out and looked at the camp and we had to have a activity. All Every activity that we did at the camp was had to have a safety plan and what was going to be taught and who was going to teach it and how what were some of the chief hazards or sa- safety issues that we needed to have. So I spent, I don't know, three weeks just going through every activity that we possibly could do. Bow making, wild foods, wood carving, willow basketry, animal tracking, going on a hike, a nature hike, playing games, playing social games, like all of these things had to have an activity plan. Because if you don't have that plan and you go out and do something and something happens, they what they wanted to know is, do you have a plan to make sure everyone is safe? For most day camps, it's, oh, we're going to do nature crafts. Where are you going to do it? At the picnic table. <laughs> and, oh, what are, what are you going to do? Sports. We're going to play volleyball, basketball, blah, blah. And then it's, oh, we're going to tell everyone the rules. We're going to keep a controlled atmosphere with being supervised so that kids don't get out of hand and ideally avoid injury or avoid problems. So each of those things that, that most camps would have were fairly common. And our camp was really different, right? Because we were a nature education camp. And I know that the, the health inspector director, he basically said he was a big Boy Scout advocate. And so he just loved everything we were doing. He's like, this place is great. I just love this. You're bringing some of this stuff back out. He was really excited to hear that we were doing like fire making without matches and just practicing like making spears and all that sort of stuff. So he was really supportive about what we did. The only thing that really came up for him was we had a section on wild foods where I said we would go out, we would gather some wild foods, come back and cook them, and then sample what those were and let kids get a, the, the whole experience. And he said, technically, the food that you serve at camp has to be food that has been inspected by the U.S. Department of Agriculture or some other agency to ensure its safety. In other words, they did not want me to go to my friend's farm and butcher a chicken and then bring it over and serve the children. It'd have to go through something where someone would check it to make sure it was disease-free and then prepare it right and, and go through the whole process of keeping it cool and cold and everything else, which is something that pretty much makes sense. But he said, when it comes to these wild foods, you're really not supposed to do that. That is technically not going to pass for getting a permit. And he said, so you can take that out. And he said, I will look the other way if you want to pick blackberries, because blackberries are something that people eat or blueberries or black raspberries. But he said, really, when it comes to these wild foods, we're not really supposed to do that. That is for a public health issue. And I said, what do you think is going to happen? And he said, some people have never had some of these foods, so they could have an allergic reaction and that could, they could die. Or there's, it it introduces a kind of this wild card into the system where they could have gastronomic, they could be having diarrhea or throwing up. All these things could start happening. And that would then be something that we could have avoided if we didn't put that in. The way he, it sounded good, what he said. And at the same time, you know, for, I don't know, I think it was like he, he said all this in like February. 
And then as I got closer to starting the camp in the summer, I just was like, okay, what do I tell my staff? What do I tell my volunteers? What do I, what, how do I feel about that? Because I really believe that learning and sampling wild foods is really important. And so we, I I know I don't, I'm pretty, I don't know if there's like a statute of limitations or whatever, but for probably about five years where I was like, look, what are the things that you guys are going to gather? Let's look at those. Those are things that I've never heard of anybody getting sick on. Things like cattails and pine needle tea. And we weren't like going out and just grabbing mushrooms randomly or anything like that. These were all very normal things like picking a bunch of blueberries and making blueberry pancakes or Yeah, we didn't go crazy with it, but I said, look, I'm okay with taking the fall if this happens because I believe in it enough that I would say I feel like I can make that decision. And at the time I thought about that and said, yeah, I believe in that. My belief in the right of these children to have experienced some of these wild foods, I think is, you know, trumps the... New York state rules, whatever. And I'm not proud of that, but I also knew that like at that time, my, my moral ethical dilemma was, yeah, I don't think we're eating anywhere near enough of any of these things. I just don't, I just don't see why it's a big deal for better or worse. We did that for a few years. Everything was pretty, again, almost when you gather wild leeks and then you make an omelet or something like that, the amount of wild leek that everyone gets, which is basically like cutting up onions or scallions or something. It's not very much of the actual substance. So we never had a problem with anything. Nothing happened. But then I went to Utah and I was traveling up a canyon, just wandering up this canyon and there were yucca flowers were blooming. And yucca flowers is one of the things that I've eaten in the past. And so I went out and started like gathering some of these blossoms just a couple, like I get two blossoms from each plant and I get a little handful and then I just munch on those. And if you've ever had them, they're sweet. It's almost like eating like iceberg lettuce with a, that has, it feels kind of velvety. It's, it's a really neat experience. It is helpful to make sure you shake them out a little bit because there are insects that can go up into the flower. And if you bite into that, you will be chewing up like a little tiny bee or something. And that's not as preferable. So anyway, I was eating these what these flowers and cruising up through the red rocks and all of a sudden the back of my throat started closing up and my tongue got really thick and I started to freak out because I was like what's happening and then it immediately hit me I'm having an allergic reaction. And it was really scary and I immediately drank a bunch of water, spit out whatever was in my mouth. And I don't, and I don't know if it actually was because I was eating a bunch of those flowers or if I, if it was just one plant that I was allergic to, I don't know. I hadn't eaten very many, but I knew that it was starting to swell up and I didn't have a full on anaphylactic shock, like where I couldn't breathe and had a really bad situation. I didn't have an EpiPen cause I'm not allergic to bee stings or any other things. I hadn't actually eaten that little bee or anything. So it wasn't like I had a bee sting or something in the back of my throat. But anyway, the situation was that I had a firsthand experience of having that experience of getting swollen and worrying about my breathing. And I was, I don't know, maybe 28 or or maybe probably 30, 
32. So I was like in good health. Everything else was great for me, but it was scary and it could have ended badly. There was nobody with me. I was in this canyon. It was like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday or something. There was nobody around. It was like a canyon on BLM land, six miles off the main road, not off of a main highway that is not well-traveled. I don't know if I could have gotten out back to my truck and then driven to Blanding to find a hospital or anything. Pretty sure I wouldn't have been able to do that if it, if it was serious. So I sat there and just waited and drank and just tried to keep my heart rate really slow and just do that. And after about an hour and a half or so, it, everything went back to normal. But it's, it stayed with me for a long time. And so then at that point, the ethical dilemma that I had before about wild foods disappeared for me. So we, we do wild edible foods for adults and, and families if families want to come out and do things. But generally, when it comes to like my youth programs, I really am very cautious about that. And, and I, at that point, I just had having a personal experience really can shape what you're going up against. But at the same time, I still believe that wild foods education is incredibly important. I believe that it is, it's really vital to teach people about these things, even despite the risk and everything else. For us now, even when we have adult programs, most of the time we are just giving people a very small taste and then letting them see how that feels. And, and then if they feel okay in 20 minutes later, then they can start to eat a little bit more. But it's, it's really, it's really tricky because when you're like young and idealistic, you're like, oh, this is how everyone should be. And this is the rules are wrong. Or like you believe the answer. And I felt a hundred percent sure that I was right. And then all of a sudden you have that situation and you're like, oh, oh, this is what it actually feels like. This is not good. This would be really scary if I was a kid or an adult or anyone having that. So that, but that's an example of like where we come from and then where our values and our beliefs can clash with situations that we have. Ethical dilemmas of what they say when you look up, if you look up ethical dilemmas and how to solve them, one of the things they talk about is to recognize when you're in an ethical dilemma. For example, for me, my dilemma was, do I want to follow every facet of New York State's regulations to the letter, or am I going to fudge some of these or stretch them to slightly beyond where they, with that hard line? Am I going to blur the line or go into a gray area? And that, at that point, that's where I would, anytime I would think about something that I would go, do I want to do this or this? I will always say that if you can exist with as few gray areas in your life as possible, you will sleep better and you will feel a lot better. And if you can figure out your way around that. So I would just say my, my options would be to say, if I really believe like everyone needs to learn wild edibles, then I could probably say I could always move to a state where they don't have that regulation. Or I could not run a summer camp at all and then just offer classes where parents come up and then they have their kids and I teach them that in a different way. In other words, I have to make decision of 
is wild foods the most critical thing to teach in my camps or are there other things that we can do that are also really powerful and good that would help me achieve some of these goals? There's a lot of ways around it. So what they say is to recognize that you're in an ethical dilemma situation, a paradox, if you will, and then to identify various points of view. Like the more you can look at it from not just me versus uh, like a rule, like a community rule or, or whatever, a norm, but really look at it from a lot of different ways. I, I can really say that now, just to be very clear, this was like in 1989 to 1995 or something. I really try to run everything I do through the health department with full compliance because I really found that I sleep a lot better and I don't have to worry about that. It, I'm, I just want to be 100% clear. So I'm sure that way anybody who's maybe listening to this from the Department of Health can know that I appreciate the rules and, and the lesson ultimately was you guys were pretty right about what you're talking about. And that was something I needed to learn. And it it's made me a better program director as a result of that. So thank you. Yeah, you identify different points of view, gather resources and info if possible. So in other words, for me as a 27 or a 28-year-old thinking, oh, that's really not, not that good or whatever. Of course, back in 1992, there's no internet then. I couldn't just do a Google search and find out violent allergic reactions <laughs> to wild foods. Today, you can do that. I could probably type in, you know, food, wild foods that can give violent reactions to or very dangerous reactions. And you can get a list of stuff. Like I know people that love eating daylily tubers and think they're the greatest thing. And personally, I've had them. I think they're okay. They don't, I wouldn't say they're like the most amazing thing ever, but then I know other people that just have incredibly bad gastronomical distress. So they either have diarrhea or they have a lot of gas and it's just really painful and it's just not fun at all. These are things that are available. The information is available. And so now we can Google things. We can reach out to people and say, do you know anyone? What do you guys do? You guys run a camp in New York State or in Vermont or wherever you're in. What do you guys do? Do you have a regulation? What's your policy? Like you can reach out now and communicate with people and get other perspectives, which is, I think, really helpful. And for me being alone and going, I have this philosophy and I'm going to decide to do this or that, I'm really making that decision alone. But if I had heard from, say, seven other camp directors and they went, yeah, we've had bad experience, don't do it, that would have swayed me very early. Having and heard those stories or getting that information, really important. Another thing that I would say at that point is that you want to create the best plan you can so that you can move forward and feel good. You want to try to resolve that ethical or paradox and understand that, yeah, you don't want to live in those gray areas and at the same time make a decision of, is this a deal breaker? Do I believe in this enough to keep going and or can, is there a way to modify it? Is there a way, like another option for me would have been to say, talk to this permit issuing official and say, can I get a waiver on this for these three different plants that we want to teach? And then they might've said, all right, we'll give you a waiver for those because those we've never heard anything 
from that. I doubt they would do that today. I don't even know if they would have done it back then. But that would be a way to resolve it. So in other words, if you don't reach out and try to resolve it, then you're on your own. And and it's hard to make those decisions without getting other people's viewpoints and input. And then whatever direction you end up doing, it's good for them to, for people to know that, or at least for you to know that you have a response if someone ever brings it up so that you can feel like you could then talk about it in a way that helps people also understand the dilemma that you were in. So these are ethical dilemmas that we have. Uh, Let's talk about some of them. So one of them, for me as an educator, I found was really important was just thinking about resources. For example, if I'm teaching about wilderness skills and I'm teaching stone tools and making stone tools, and I'm thinking about all the programs I ran with the after school and school groups and camps and all these different programs, I recognize that I would look out and go, hey, if I go out into the woods and I gather a bunch of chert, Cherry Valley chert, Onondaga chert, break some of that up and then bring that in and let the students make stone tools, I recognize that I was gathering a limited resource. If I go out and gather willow, like willow arrow shafts or viburnum arrow shafts, yeah, I'm going to be going in and I'm going to be taking, in some cases, 30 or 40 arrow shafts from some bushes that were trimmed three years ago underneath some power lines. And so I go, oh yeah, that's fine. I can probably selectively get some good arrow shafts out of that. But if I were to try to take 500 of them, then it would be going too far, probably. Now, it's not necessarily that it would ruin everything because let's face it, the entire bushes all get cut down to within two inches of the ground every three or four years. But the point is that it's a, it is a resource that you would have to cultivate. And arrow shafts are something that can re- come back. Whereas if I go in and I take 20 flint chunks, I can't come back in three years and go, oh, look, three more. <laughs> the flint grew back over three years. Like it doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't do work that way. The same is true for clay. It's, there are certain things that are finite in terms of those resources. And that got me thinking a lot about what other area, what other things do we do that aren't necessarily in high demand are, they're not renewable. So that is, is something that I think a lot about in terms of how much should I push, say, flint napping as a really awesome thing to do because it's super cool and fun. And it's what our ancestors did for years and years, knowing that in the field of forest education, if we were to grow to really reach like the 79 million children that are in the United States today, that we would instantly, within six months, we'd use up all the Flint resources that we'd have probably if every one of those kids was making an arrowhead as part of their curriculum or something. So I, that's when I start, start thinking like, maybe we could make wooden arrowheads. Maybe we could make bone arrowheads. Maybe we could make them with something else so that we aren't using up a finite resource when it's not necessary that we have to use that. And that is something that I have thought about because it is just, it's challenging to source certain things. And so it also makes me look back and go, oh, wow, the programs where I did use those, use that Flint 
whatever, that was really special. So it helps me to understand how special it is when we do and to know that those aren't necessarily going to be things that uh, everyone will be able to do. And so I, I want to make sure that there are there's some flint left 500 years from now that we could still have that skill be practiced by people that choose to go into that without it just being just completely wiped out. So that's a that's an important piece. And the one one thing that I can say is whatever you end up choosing, know that it it's if you can choose things that are renewable, that is going to really be preferable than picking non-renewable items. And that we try to not use things that are plastic in our programs as much as possible. So we actually built timber frame cabins so that we could avoid using those blue plastic tarps, which they only last like a year or two years. And those are just seem like a tremendous amount of waste. So we were just thinking always, oh, we don't want to use plastic containers. If we can use paper, we don't want to use you know, tools that are completely made, uh, you know, with a lot of plastic. We just want to try to say, hey, how do we limit that? Because we know that plastic, creating plastic creates non-renewable or possibly toxic waste as well as microplastic uh, problems and so forth. So all of these things move forward for us in a way to build an identity around what we do to, that is as kind to the earth as it can possibly be. That's something that I think all of our programs probably have to handle that and look at that and see what feels good. And then sometimes you have to use plastic or you have to use something like a Ziploc bag or whatever. And then you have to go, all right, if we use two Ziploc bags all summer, we're probably going to be okay. So anyway, it's tough. It's it's not easy to live your ideals 100%. So I don't mind being a flawed environmentalist or a work in progress or whatever, as opposed to uh, aiming for perfection and being all stressed out because I can't achieve that. Uh, I think that's a better model anyway. Let's see. Another element that comes up for people who are in, in forest education, and this is true for other employers as well, is this idea of freedom of our employees and our, and ourselves to be ourselves, share whatever we want to share on social media and have our own philosophy or expression in the world. And then balancing that also with posting things on social media and then seeing, okay, how does that perceived in the eye of the public? So for example, there are teachers right now that you hear about in the news where they are, they're a sixth grade science teacher and they're doing a great job. They've been doing it for 10 years and they start like an OnlyFans account, which is like a, a private adult kind of membership thing where people can see pictures and videos of, of you and talk, get to know you or whatever. And you can, people will pay. And the problem often is that people then go, all right, if you're someone's sixth grade teacher, but you're also on that, that a lot of people get really uncomfortable with that because they, they can't necessarily separate a private life versus professional life. And so then those teachers get let go. They get fired or they get pushed to resign. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to go just in that direction. It could Sometimes it's somebody is agreeing with 
an opinion or a post that's considered hate speech or something that is racially per se perceived or whatever. And so the response on the individual is to say, I have the freedom to express myself. I'm not at work or whatever. And then the employers, you're also representing our forest education. You're representing our school. You're representing our museum. You're representing our store or our, our movie company or our movie or whatever it is. And then people end up getting terminated because they have a clause in there that in their contract maybe, or just they go, Hey, we're just, we're going to go in different directions because we don't want to be associated in that way. And we also just want to avoid the controversy because most of the time, if you're someone that says, Hey, my focus is on forest education, you don't really want your program to be embroiled in a controversy about something that has nothing to do with forest education and people's perception of whatever that subject is. So it could be like recreational drug use, could be anything that makes people uncomfortable and gets people upset can end up being something that really then takes away from your mission and like suddenly tints your program. And so that's an ethical dilemma, right? Because if you're the director of a program, you've hired three staff and one of them is figuring out stuff, whatever. And I'm not, I really don't want to be saying that anybody's doing anything right or wrong because I think that's something that is very subjective. I'm just saying that as the result of those things, how do you resolve that? And do you keep that person in your company or not and hope it blows over? Or what is so egregious or so problematic that you're then thinking, all right, we're going to, we're going to move on from this situation. And you just go, look, you know what? I have enough stuff to do. I'm like getting ready for this festival. I'm trying to promote this program for the summer. I'm trying to hire all the other staff. I'm trying to do all these things. And on top of that, having to field calls saying that we support racism or we support hate speech or we support X, Y, Z is on top of that adding to my workload and I don't want to do that anymore. And so I'm going to just let this person go and then make a statement. At the same time, you go, eh, what did we do? So I just want you to know, like, that is an ethical dilemma that is not necessarily something that probably comes up a lot in our forest programs, but it could be, and it does in education and in all pretty much any enterprise. Yeah, that's a tough one. I've never had to let go of anybody from social media, but it is something that is hard to do. I know, and I know people who have, and it's a fine line. So I think that the good news about an ethical dilemma like that is something where if you're an educator, you're a, either someone who is working in this field, or if you're someone who's a director, these are just good things to keep in mind and then begin to say, Hey, how should we craft a policy around that? And, and maybe let the employee know that's your policy before they are hired so that they can choose whether or not they want to, whatever, self-edit on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. That these are worthwhile. These are worth thinking about to avoid a situation down the road. Another one that comes up, I think, is that's another valid dilemma is coming from this idea of employee pay versus the business owner slash CEO pay. And 
the perception around creating living wages and small business. And there's a lot of different feelings that people have around, hey, we're running this program, who's making all the money and everything else. Now, to somebody who has never run a business, they can look at a program and go, oh, you're running a summer camp for kids. You have 30 kids, they're each paying $500. So for this week, we're making $15,000. And they're like, wow, that's so much money. Oh my gosh, it's, they're just raking it in. And, and because you, you don't necessarily know the whole financial picture and you've never run a business, that perception is reality for that person. And so at that point, you can say, wow, this person's making all the money and I'm making hardly anything. And it can then feel like, oh, Ricardo Sierra is Jeff Bezos. You know what I mean? Oh, listen to Elon Musk. After you get done, whatever, doing the campfire tomorrow, we need to talk about me getting paid more because you're Mr. Moneybags or something. And this doesn't, hasn't really been a big issue for me personally, although it has been conversations that I've had and I have struggled with it because on the other side of it, there's this point where it's like, Hey, I'm a business owner and I love the people that I've worked with. Like those are the young people that have been in my programs that have worked with those kids and taken them on hikes and shown them like wilderness skills and told them stories that were really meaningful to them. They put their heart and soul in the program and helped make the magic happen. I love those people. I can say that even people that were a pain in my butt, I can look back and go, I really hope they're doing really well. I love that. Even within that, there's a feeling of sincere caring and sincere wishing everybody well and wanting to compensate them to the best of my ability. And that being said, we also have now, whenever you have your federal or state minimum wage requirement, so there's like a minimum amount you have to charge or pay for people. And th like th that's an issue because when we look at running a business, we know that I knew that, okay, yeah, I might make a bunch of money in June, July, and August, and then we might, we might have no income in February, December, January, February, or very little. And we also have to pay the taxes or we have to pay insurance and we have to pay for propane. Like this, the people that don't have the experience will look and go, you're making all this money. And I'm like, the propane tanks all get filled next week. And that's going to be whatever, $2,000. And then we have our tax bill and that's $10,000. And we have this. So all of a sudden, if you start adding in all those expenses, suddenly that person with more knowledge, they go, oh, wow. Hey, how are you guys staying in business? So they flip it around and they go, can you even afford me at this rate? What the heck? And I just say, yeah, it's really difficult. It's definitely, we are not Jeff Bezos. I wish, I wish that we were in a position to say, hey, we have this much profit that we're making and we can really give back. But this is an ethical dilemma because we as a director might really want to pay people as well as we can. And at the same time, we have to protect our business venture and make sure that it stays in the black and, and that it actually can pay for myself or my family or for you or your family and make sure that you could then save towards buying a piece of land or maybe replacing the camp truck or the whatever it is, right? You Maybe you want to put a little yurt up on your forest program and that yurts are not free according to 
the priceless on the internet. And so all of these things cost money as well. And, and it's like, how do you balance all those things? That is an ethical dilemma because you have to then look and go, all right, maybe if I could fundraise and get an extra $30,000 a year, maybe I could raise the money to then tell people, hey, I need to pay my staff more and people will donate to support me paying my staff better so they could do that same work and not have to do it at such a low cost. But that's a lot of work too, to promote that. And who's going to do that work? And am I going to get paid to do all that work to help them? Like it's really tricky because until you get to a big enough size where your organization can actually have other people in those positions, like a, like a private school will have a department of admissions, right? So there'll be somebody looking for, they, all they do is try to get more students into the school and they are doing outreach and promotion and they're going and talking with parents and they're leading tours of the school and they, taking that off of the, the faculty and the school, college, whatever you want to call it, the college of teachers or whatever. You have people that go, hey, we're just focused on actually doing the job. And then you have these other people in place. In a forest school program, the director is usually the person doing everything. They're the ones raising the money. They're the ones taking all the bills and everything to the accountant. If they even have an accountant, they're, maybe they have it all in a shoebox. And they have, they're the ones that have to, during tax season, go through and, and do all the paperwork at the end of the year or, or during the year. Every couple of weeks, they have to balance everything and make sure everything's going well. And they're the ones driving at nine o'clock at night to go get supplies for the next day, or maybe they're baking stuff for all the kids to have for snack tomorrow. Like they're just doing all these things. There, there isn't anyone else doing that until they get to a certain size. And even when you do get to a certain size, the big question is, can you stay there? And can you afford to hire someone and then keep them on long enough to be able to like really establish stability? There's, it's very difficult to have stability with a fluctuating economy and also people who can afford sending kids to summer camps or programs or going forest bathing or whatever it is you were, were offering. Many times what is really good financially in our world can be short-lived. We can have three good years where people are donating and we, had, we got a grant and all of our programs are filled. And then all of a sudden you might have two summers where Things grant ran out, programs were three quarters full instead of full, two or three schools didn't sign up for the program. And then all of a sudden you're in a deficit or you're like at zero where you get, there's no profit, there's no, you're struggling and you're worried, are we going to be able to really keep this going? Most programs don't have a cash reserve that can get you over lean times. So all of these things kind of work synergistically to impact what we'd like to do, what we believe is important to do and what we can do. Right. And so these are, this is an ethical dilemma that I think oh, actually we could probably do a whole episode just talking about these things. On the flip side of this, there's also the idea of what do we do when we think, oh, my program, in order for me to run this wilderness summer camp, I need to charge X number of dollars or pounds or rupees or whatever it is that we're working in. And then on the other side of it, there's the dilemma of, oh, here's a single mom who works at Starbucks and can barely pay 
for food and is trying their best and they really want their kid to come to this program and they cannot afford what your program costs. And then you go, all right, what can I do? Should I drop the price of this program to what they can afford? And usually when you ask somebody, what can you afford? They go, nothing or $50 or something like that. And and then you go, all right, if I do that, then what is the long-term impact of that? And Or I have to then get a scholarship fund or whatever. And many times the problem arises where someone will say, hey, can I get a scholarship? And then it's, do I have a scholarship fund? And some, most of the time I don't because I don't have the time to just continually fundraise to try to find people who will say, hey, here's $800, give, give $400 off for two deserving families. Many times that just doesn't happen. Sometimes it does. And when it does, it's just awesome. So we do that. But again, you have to have a very disciplined, intense focus to be able to both fundraise for what you need, fundraise for what your staff needs, and then fundraise to help people who don't have the income. Or you turn around and say, all right, can we build our business model on a sliding scale? Or do we do it where we say, hey, it's a pay as able parent. Some parents pay $50, some parents pay $5,000. And you go, okay, great. That only works if you have enough parents paying at the, at a higher, on the high end to be able to then make that balance. And then usually if you have three quarters of them are at the very bottom minimum part of it, then the question is, <laughs> How do you feel about paying your staff? Because they're usually going to get a much lower weekly rate of pay. So ethical dilemma, right? Ethical dilemma. I don't know. I don't know how to solve any of these other than to say it really helps if you're in an area that is an affluent area. Like it makes a big difference. If I could go back and start my camp instead of being in an area that was pretty rural, that was really far from an urban center. I would 100% say that, yeah, if I could have been located 45 minutes outside of Boston, that ethical dilemma would have been much, much easier to handle. If I was outside of, say, Westchester, or if I was in a suburb of Denver, or I was in a suburb of Santa Barbara, anywhere where there's like a center, an economic driving center where there is an, an actual local economy where people are making enough that they can then afford to do these things really helps because that's the model I was using. Or the other way to go is to say, all right, I'm going to then work for the state or work for in the parks and rec department, or I'm going to work as a teacher and convince like the public school teachers or the public schools to then offer the program I'm doing for free. So it's fully equitable. And again, there's a lot of restrictions that come with that. So now would I still be doing the same program that I'm running currently? No. So a lot of decisions, a lot of issues. And these are things that we're going to have to work out individually and hopefully professionally as well. Another, I guess I would just add the last uh, thing that we'll just talk about in here is just talking about honest marketing. That's a, an ethical dilemma because on one side of it, one of the things that really helps students to and parents to decide to come to your program is if you say hey i'm we're going to if you take this program you will learn these things you will get these experiences 
that lead to, say, leadership or confidence or whatever. But at the same time, if we're someone that's been running this for a while, we go, I've run programs where kids came in and they weren't that confident and they didn't leave that confident either. Like you don't know how long it will take for some of these programs that we have to plant these seeds that then take root six months from now, a year from now. And how much can we lay claim to that effect when that student also went to soccer camp and they went to sailing camp and then they spent three months, three weeks with their uncle in Switzerland or on a farm or whatever. And so all of these things kind of work to create a, an impact on us when we go to try to market what we do, because on, on the one side of it, we're saying, Hey, this is what we offer. And then on the other side of it, you go, will they actually get that? Then if your marketing just says something like, oh, come to Hawk Circle, your kid will be able to stay in a dry tent or cabin and will have supervision by someone who is a responsible person who will keep them safe and you will have three meals a day. That's not too exciting, but that is a factual thing that we will provide. Most people don't want to say the fa- just the factual stuff because it's not that exciting and you're probably not going to make any money or get many people. So in a way, you have to then say, what are we doing? What are we promising? What are we offering? And if you're someone that is really conscientious, you don't necessarily want to oversell what you do or overpromise. But on the flip side of it, I will say that Star Wars movie comes out and they go, come to this movie. It's going to be awesome. And there's going to be lightsabers and people having a great time. And we're going to be fighting for the fate of the galaxy. And there's going to be all kinds of weird creatures. And there'll be a little robot that squeaks and all this stuff. But they're they're going to package it as this exciting thing. Now, you pay your money and you go. And sometimes you might go, that was awesome. It over-delivered everything that I wanted. And other times you go, what was that? Can I get my money back? Like that, or maybe you fall asleep because it's so boring. Whatever it is, everybody out there is promising something whenever you get, you go to a restaurant. Sometimes you go to a restaurant and you just don't like the meal you got, or it wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be. That's always been disappointing for myself because I'm like, ah, we don't like to eat out that much. But when we do go, we hope it's better than what we make at home at least. And sometimes you go, wow, how can you mess up spaghetti? But in that situation, you have to, you're taking the gamble on it and you have to modify. I'm trying to solve this ethical dilemma. I probably shouldn't be, but the point I always think of when I'm looking at marketing is to say, at least if you, if someone, if a parent is saying, Hey, my kid's just sitting on the couch playing Grand Theft Auto and they're when they stop playing Grand Theft Auto, they just watch Netflix and then scroll on TikTok. So they could say, okay, Ricardo's promising nature experiences that are transformative and help promote leadership and team building and communication. Now, it does that mean that kid will necessarily get all of that? Probably not, or maybe, I don't know, but I can tell you right now, they have a much higher percentage chance of getting any of that than they do scrolling through TikTok and 
FaceTiming with their friends and playing Grand Theft Auto. So, so that's the point that we can say is that at least we're going to be trying to do that with your kid. And that's what we're promising. We will be there. We have the best intentions. We will see your kid as a human being. We will like really treat them well and have a lot of fun with them and find, hopefully uncover some of their gifts and do the best we can. And this is our goal. So this is what we're searching for. This is what we're trying to build. And hey, will we be successful? Who knows? But right now we're doing the best we can. So these are things that they're ethical dilemmas because we're trying to balance what do we do? What do we do in this situation versus that situation? And we're in, we're just like every other department. Nurses have ethical dilemmas of, hey, we have a limited amount of equipment and we have a whole bunch of people that are sick. And how do we ration the supplies we have with the people that are in front of us? They also look at in education. Sometimes you have a situation where you go, hey, we have this athlete who we really love and they give a lot of attention to the school and it creates a lot of donors to the school and there's a lot of like goodwill and people are excited about being part of our program because these athletes are there so do we then grade them differently as a result of their academic performance in order to let them keep being involved in our school or our program and those are big scandals that that happen in schools or colleges these are things that we have to deal with and we have to like think about and discuss and then go, where's the line? Because we should have a policy, which is to say that everyone is treated fairly. Everyone is getting the same chance. And that's not always true. I guess another one for forest education is, okay, you have a kid that really could benefit from the program, but they're going to take a lot of effort because they have special needs. And you go, okay. Is it fair to the kid if you say, no, you can't come? But is it also fair if you do let them come to all the other children who are now going to get 30% less of staff involvement in them, right? So what they were going to get was like a percentage of attention from everybody. Now they're going to get a lot less because you have to kind of do whatever this person's needs are. And so as a director, you're like, okay, do we take this person or not? And if we do take it, what are the consequences? If we don't take it, what are the consequences? And the only thing that we can say is that you can't please everybody. You, we can't do everything, unfortunately. So anyway, I hope, I hope this uh, stirs some good <laughs> thoughts or stimulates your, your ideas or your own paradoxes and ethical dilemmas. If I've missed one that you think should be in this list, please send me an email, send me a message on Instagram or, or Facebook or just off my website. Happy to discuss, happy to hear what your opinions are. And we will see you out in the woods or next week or whatever comes first. Okay. All right. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. 
and I will see you outside.